Welcome to I Thought the Lore, the podcast where we examine a paranormal tale and try to figure out why people still talk about it today. Where we don't care about true or false. We're only interested in how or why some stories linger in the backs of our minds while others disappear completely. In the end, we'll try to figure out if the lore won or if the lore lost. We're your hosts, Ben McDewey and Rico Sweets from the Mean Streets. We're here to bring that magical tale to your teeny tiny tingly ears. Oh, that's so much better. It has been a long week of driving and investigations, and the farther we can get from that mall and wherever it was that we were lost in said mall, I feel better. I can only apologize so often for that. Didn't realize that everything would be closed when we got out, but... And have no doors... And have no windows and smell like a musty old empty office space it's good that we found that door at the end and janet two years ago just happened to be there she wasn't pleased to see me but at least we found her way out she was not pleased at all i'm surprised that for once the mobile command center made it through one of your encounters unscathed at least so far as i can tell I haven't seen any tooth marks. Uh, there's certainly no lipstick on it. No, that's and, a first. Yeah, no claw marks. That's good. I mean, this th- maybe this one will last. Well, good and, luck finding us. We are on the side of the road in the middle of, from what I can tell, absolutely nowhere. A lot of trees, a lot of foliage this time of year. And it's nice because it's all turning those reds and browns and yellows and coming up to that Halloween spooky season, the autumn Best time of the year, man. Oh, that's right. The spooky season. That's Rico's time. Rico does love him some spooky season. Whole year could be spooky season if I could just justify it properly in my mind. And for three quarters of it, I can. Given your history on that dating app, I would say all year has been spooky season. Okay. You know what? They were all really nice. They all had really great personalities. Sorry they didn't conform to that normal, you know, media-savvy standard of beauty, but they were all nice girls. It just didn't work out between me and any one of them. Sorry. It's not like I'm trying to mess this up. Just looking for the right lady. So getting back to the topic of spooky season. Sitting here thinking about it. It's coming up in, what, another another week, couple days, something like that? Yeah, about a week. It's going to be the best holiday of the year that's not actually a holiday halloween baby best time the ghouls the spooks the specters the (laughs) goblins the creepy witches and skeletons and all of those guys coming out and you know trick-or-treating and candy those tasty little individual chocolate bars peanut butter cups and i love them i'm gonna get Eat them. Oh, I can't wait. I love it. Spooky movies, scary movies, the Halloween series, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Ghostface. Oh, baby. You know what? I'm going to start watching movies now. You can drive wherever we're going. I'm just going to totally immerse myself in some horror movie marathons. I'm going to drink some pumpkin spice beer. I'm going to eat pumpkin pie by the fistful, baby. By the fistful. Love it. All day long. Get my inner pumpkin spice girl going. Pumpkin spice lattes every single day to start my day. 
it makes me wonder how Halloween even became what it is. How did we get here? Halloween is not what it used to be. Well, and that's, that's very apparent. And I don't think that's any secret at this point. I mean, Halloween today is so far and removed from what it originally started out as. So, why don't we put our feet up, continue this drink, it's a nice evening, and I will tell you the story of Halloween. By this point in history, tons of people know that Halloween's beginnings date back to the pagan Celtic festival of Samhain. Now, it's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, looks like you'd say it is Samhain, but it's actually pronounced Samhain. About 2,000 years ago, the Celts, who people mostly associate with Ireland, also lived in what is now Great Britain and Northern France. Okay. I didn't know that. That's a recent revelation. Like everybody else, I thought the Celts or the Celts, or however you want to pronounce it, were the Irish folk. Mm -hmm. But it goes beyond that. You had the whole culture wasn't just stopped by the sea. It spread all through that northern section of Great Britain, Ireland, and into France. And Boston. <clears throat> and Boston. Uh, yeah. I wonder if the ancient Celts had green running rivers during a certain time of year and vomit everywhere as well. So most of what we know about the origins of the greatest holiday of the year come from surviving folk traditions. And we know that the celebration of Samhain itself goes back at least 2,000 years based on a bronze Celtic calendar that was discovered in France in 1890. Samhain marked the end of the year for the Celts. Summer and the harvest had come to an end, and the beginnings of the dark, cold winter months began. This time of year was associated with death and hibernation. Celts believed that on the night before the new year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became thin, and the spirits could cross back over to our world, be present during the ceremonies, and we can see into their world as well. On this night, which was October 31st, or close to it, because I don't actually know how the calendars worked back then, they celebrated the Festival of Samhain, a festival to bring an end to the year. Now, their festivals included huge bonfires where people gathered to burn their leftover crops, they sacrificed animals as offerings to their gods, costumes, which typically consisted of animal heads and skins, were worn. So, kind of like ancient furries. Exactly. And it's suggested that these costumes actually predate Samhain itself. So there was something before Samhain where they did a lot of these same things, but wore the costumes of the animals that they sacrificed. I'm not fully up on my early 2,000 years ago Celtic ancient Irish history, but weren't people at this time, weren't they just kind of wearing animal skins on the regular? Or uh, did they have, you know, formal animal skins for events like these? Well, I mean, I'd like to think that there was a top hat that was made out of a raccoon, maybe. Um, you put on your best loincloth. Now, there was woven fabric at this time. I don't know what they were wearing. I guess it depends on how advanced your culture or your part of the world was. The ancient Egyptians were wearing fabrics at this time, and they Fair had enough. class that they yep. were making. But I don't know that the ancient Celts were that advanced. They were advanced in some ways and less advanced in others, just like every other culture around the world, right? During this festival, games and ceremonies were practiced in an attempt to tell fortunes and predict how the coming season would unfold. Now, a lot of that information that I got came from history.com. They have a great write-up on 
the history of Halloween. Hmm. Again, this isn't new information. I'd say over the years, it became common knowledge that Halloween evolved from this ancient tradition of Samhain. But there's a lot more to it that might not be common knowledge. Although if you found this podcast, you're probably already kind of familiar with it. A lot of religious folk in the past have called Halloween evil or associated it with the devil, but there is actually a pretty strong connection to the Christian faith that really isn't all that well-known either. Again, being relatively unfamiliar with this time period, if people knew that Halloween or Samhain originated prior to it being involved with Christianity at all, they would know that it's impossible for Halloween to, to have started with worshiping the devil because Samhain predates what people even knew the devil to be. Yeah, the concept of the devil didn't exist mm -hmm. at that point, or at least not in this part of the world. By 43 CE, the Roman Empire had conquered the majority of the Celtic territories, and in the 400 years or so that followed, two festivals of Roman origin were combined with the traditional Celtic celebration of Samhain. The first of the Roman celebrations was Feralia, or Feralia, a day in October when the Romans commemorated the passing of the dead, so those line up pretty easily. Yeah, it was nice of them to uh, hijack spooky season with not their own festival, but one that at least was similar to the one that they were trying to replace. Well, remember that hijacking, because it does kind of come up later as well. <laughs> uh, the second festival was a day to honor Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit trees. Oh, and my I can... Pomona. I mean, that also lines up too, and you can kind of see how, how Festival of Pomona, fruit and trees, you know, that kind of plays into the whole autumn thing, yeah. right? Because you've got the harvest with all the fruits and vegetables and the horn of plenty, the image of that, and you've got the trees all kind of changing their colors, and almost a celebration it, of the end of the year itself. Yeah, and it's almost as if you have these two festivals where the first one being about death but then you have the second one with fruit and trees, almost like life and prosperity. Right? So yep. I can see very easily how those kind of line up. And I mean, that works. Now you fast forward a couple hundred years or more, and Catholicism and it's a full swing, baby. On May 13th in 609 CE, Pope Boniface IV dedicated the Pantheon in Rome in honor of all Christian martyrs and the Catholic feast of All Martyrs Day was established in the Western Church. Pope Gregory III later expanded the festival to include all saints as well as martyrs and moved the observance from May 13th to November 1st. Interesting. Now, by the 9th century, Christianity had spread into the Celtic lands and had gradually blended with the older Celtic rites. In and around 1000 CE, the church made November 2nd All Souls Day, a day to honor the dead, and it's widely believed that the church was attempting to replace the Celtic festival of the dead with a church-sanctioned holiday, as they've been known to do with other pagan celebrations in the past. Hmm. All Souls Day was celebrated similarly to Samhain with big bonfires, parades, and dressing up in costumes. But these costumes were more Christian-themed, with saints and angels and devils. Like, like sexy devils? Is there any other kind? Fair enough. The All Saints Day celebration was also called All Hallows, or All Hallow Mass, 
and the night before it, the traditional night of Samhain in the Celtic religion began to be called All Hallows Eve and eventually Halloween. So with all this talk of Catholicism in November 1st, is it a stretch to guess this also involves the origins of Dia de los Muertos? That's a great call right there. When Christianity moved into Spain and then subsequently into Central and South America, supposedly there was already an element of ancestor worship in the native people there and the two kind of intermingled. However, there's been a debate over the last decade or so as to whether it's actually true that there was a pre-existing ancestor worship thing going on or if the idea was actually a political move to create a false history and spread it around amongst the spanish-speaking people of central and south america the debate is there but it's also sadly not something you would put past the catholic church and politics true yep. and a lot of the time especially when you go back a couple hundred years or more You've got politics and religion are always intermingled. But as the old saying goes, it's hard to keep a good pagan holiday down no matter how hard Christianity tries. And like Christmas trees and Easter eggs, some of those pre-Christian festivities survive. Is that actually an old saying? Well, I'm old. I just said it. So, yes. Uh, during the Middle Ages, it became tradition for the poor to visit homes of the wealthy on All Saints Day and receive a soul cake in exchange for a promise to pray for the souls of the family's dead relatives. This eventually evolved into receiving other forms of treats, money, or ale. I can use some door-to-door -door ale. The whole idea of the poor wandering the streets, harassing the rich for free stuff, especially free booze, reminds me a lot of tradition of wassailing that used to perform like an old-timey Christmas. Just a drunken mob wandering house to house, celebrating Jesus by threatening the homeowners with violence if they weren't given more booze. And I'm sure you can easily see how that eventually morphed into trick-or-treating. I remember as a kid there was an old man who would give stacks of pennies out to trick-or-treaters. Kids never understood why and thought he was just too cheap to buy candy. But years later, the revelation came to me that this was a tradition of a different sort. Pennies on the eyes or in the mouth of corpses was an ancient Greek tradition. They were put there, supposedly, so the dead could pay the ferrymen who would bring souls of the dead across the river Styx and into the afterlife. Was he, was he known to ask people to come sail away, come sail away, come sail away with him? I hope so. This old guy was practicing an older rite that just wasn't understood by us, by the kids at the time. Secret, secret, he had a secret. <laughs> From the 15th century on, people started dressing up as winter spirits. Oh, like sexy spirits. Uh, we'll get to sexy, don't you worry. These people in costume as winter spirits would perform songs and little acts in order to receive treats. Hmm. Again, what you brought up. Wassling, it's a lot like that. And now we kind of see the intermingling of not just what we perceive as Halloween, but also more of a winter festival to celebrate the oncoming snowy times and whatnot. And having grown up through Halloween, I do remember more than one occasion having to stuff a winter coat underneath the costume you choose to wear <laughs> that night. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, wassling, this actually reminds me a lot of caroling at Christmas time. The idea being that carolers would receive money or a mug of hot chocolate or mulled wine, like you had said before, they went door to door, but with fewer threats of violence, I'm assuming. I mean, I would imagine in some cases, the only threat that existed would just be more singing. Yeah. 
what's that Christmas Carol? Uh, bring out the figgy pudding. We're not leaving until we get some. Yep. That's a little threatening. Yep. Get out. The party's <laughs> over. Do you not know enough to leave when the party's over? The idea of the souls of the dead mingling on earth with the souls of the living never truly went away either. And dressing in costumes remained in some form or other throughout this whole time as well. The origin of the costumes might be lost at this point, but it's thought that the costumes were to hide yourself from the souls of the dead coming through the thin veil so they wouldn't harass you or follow a loved one home instead of returning to the afterlife when the veil got thick again. I'm a little confused at the logic here where you have a time of the year when families get together and celebrate their loved ones and you know, set seats at tables for them in hopes that they show up, etc. But you're also expected to wear a costume in case that same ghost that you want to spend time with so badly follows you home. Where and you won't leave. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe most of it was focused on other spirits following you home and not leaving. That would make more sense. But... I mean, really, let's let's think about ghosts. When your loved one passes away, goes into the further, the beyond, or wherever they go to, into the afterlife, you want to think that that's a great place to be, mm -hmm. right? You want to think that, you know, there's access to heaven, that maybe there's access to other dimensions. Hey, maybe they're flying through space and seeing all the magical things that we can't see, even with the Hubble's telescope or the... What's that new telescope? It's James Webb. Yeah, the James Webb telescope. But if they're going to come back to Earth, wouldn't it suck as a ghost to be trapped on Earth? Like now you can't interact with everything all the time. Yeah. Your family members can't see you. They may try to acknowledge you, but you're kind of stuck in a situation where everybody's pretending to ignore you. Would that not suck? Go back to the afterlife. Come and visit us on Halloween. Come and visit us during Christmas. But yeah, don't forget to go back to where you're supposed to be because that's probably a lot nicer than being stuck here without the ability to communicate. Yeah, I mean, especially if you've gone from being able to come and go across wherever you want to being trapped within the confines of, say, the single floor of a two-floor house. Or trapped in the attic as a brown mist. During the Christian feast of St. Martin in November, animal hides were worn in Ireland and Scotland. It was believed that during the festival, the world of the gods became visible to the world of the humans, resulting in a supernatural mischief. Some people offered treats and food to the gods, while others wore disguises such as animal skins and heads, so the wandering spirits might mistake them for one of their own, and again, not harass them. Costumes were a way to not only protect yourself from the spirits of the dead, but also to play mischievous pranks on each other and hope that you weren't found out. So taking the idea of the Halloween mask and chalking it up to increased anonymity for causing mischief. Yes, not only could the spirits not mess with me, but I could prank you, bro, and you'd never know it was me. Although if I was going to prank you... Is it really a prank without telling you, Haha, dude, it's a prank, bro. And then, <laughs> like, I want to reveal it to you that I pranked you? Yeah. This just sounds like an excuse to be an asshole and get away with it. <laughs> From an October 25th, 2020 article on CNN.com, quote, 
Hiding behind their costumes, villagers often played pranks on one another, but blamed the spirits. It wasn't me. According to the author of the article, Leslie Bannatine, who has written extensively about the history of Halloween, she is quoted again as saying, masks and cover-ups came to be seen as a means to get away with things. That's continued throughout Halloween's evolution. The idea of the dead returning on this night also saw some households leaving out extra food for departed souls and extra places that were set at the table in memory of family members who'd passed on. Something I thought was only done over Christmas, but apparently it was done during this time of year too, historically. Especially if you send your kid out for milk and he didn't wear a mask and little Jimmy wound up dragging grandma home by accident. And it's like, well, you know, you had one job, Jimmy. Now we got to set an extra spot at the table. Because, you know, grandma saw you and followed you back here. Yeah, at first I thought you meant, like, he went out for butter and then, like, came home, but he had stopped on the way to dig up grandma. <laughs> that, Jamie's got some issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the Irish and Scottish immigrated to North America en masse, these traditions were brought with them and began to be practiced here and became very popular and spread very quickly. This is the one thing I do recall hearing about with Halloween and that's that this time of year is where jack-o'-lanterns and their popularity came from. I remember there was this old Irish legend about a guy named Stingy Jack. And he was this drunken blacksmith with a penchant for playing fuck about find out with Satan. And it ends up the guy gets cursed to just wander the earth for eternity with his only source of light being a glowing coal inside a turnip he'd carved to carry it. Yeah, wasn't it something about being too bad to get into heaven, but the devil refused to admit him to hell, so he was cursed to wander about the dark space in between, and that's why he had that carved-out turnip? I also remember a story from when I was a little kid in grade school, and they told us about jack-o'-lanterns and where they came from, the carving of scary faces in them. This is not going to be very politically correct, but the story I remember goes like this. There was a family who had settled on Native American land, and they didn't have permission to do it. So the family would get raided by Native Americans, and they would come and they would you know, attack the family, and the family would have to defend themselves. And at one point, it was in the autumn, and the family decided that in order to scare away the Native Americans who were attacking them, they needed to look like they had more people with them, that they were more well-equipped, and do something scary to frighten them. So they carved jack-o'-lanterns or they carved pumpkins with scary faces, put candles inside of them so they glowed like demons, Ooh. and then lined them up. So when the Native Americans came to attack them, the attackers suddenly saw all of these evil demonic faces oh. facing them down and frightened most of them away. So it was sort of an intimidation tactic. Yes. Okay. Also, I'm sure bullshit. So because it caught on in North America so well, people had embraced the pagan roots of the celebration, and the costumes began focusing on scary aspects again. Images of angels and saints and blackened faces, that's not politically correct either, gave way to costumes designed to frighten again. Ghouls and gnarled witches and skeletons and ghosts were back on top where they belong, baby! Now, we're talking late 19th and early 20th century here. So these were made with household items and improvised, and you can come off looking really creepy this way. I look up some old pictures of Halloween costumes from decades ago, I'm talking pre-1950s, and see what I'm talking about. 
And a great example of this is the costumes that's worn by the Dune school bus children from the 2007 movie Trick or Treat by Michael Doherty. Now, I was just going to mention when you were saying that I've seen those pictures of the quote unquote historical Halloween costumes. And these things, whether intentionally or unintentionally, are far more terrifying than anything that could be done with latex and foam. The level of unintentional horror these people could achieve with paint, paper mache, and an old milk jug. It was just amazing. By the 1920s and the 30s, Halloween parties aimed at kids and masquerade balls for adults became very popular. They were seen as a great excuse for people to gather between summer festivals and winter festivals. But with any popular holiday, big business had to get in there and get their share. The commercialization of Halloween began. Manufactured Halloween costumes and masks began to appear, influenced by pop culture at the time and produced by the first costume manufacturing companies who had licensed images like Popeye, Mickey Mouse, Little Orphan Annie. Now, people of a certain vintage will understand who those people are. Anybody who's uh, of a fine vintage, such as myself and Big Bad Benny over there, will understand exactly who we're talking about. Yeah, I remember my uh, very first Halloween costume was Puff the Magic Dragon. Wow, man. I feel like it was crucial that these also had to have the copyrighted image of the character you were representing emblazoned across your torso because clearly that's what the person looked like, right? They would have their own face printed somewhere on their body. Well, yeah, With the I look, do. I always found that very fun that it wasn't just dressing up like a character from a movie that was popular at the time uh, you had to dress up like that character and also make it abundantly clear to people walking by who you were i've got a great example of that when i was in the fifth or sixth grade return of the jedi came out you know how they Jabba the hut had that kind of pig man that was one of his guards yes kid came to school and he had the pig man mask and then he had the garbage bag kind of produce costume that yep. went with it that vinyl smock kind of thing yes yeah. exactly and across it said star wars <laughs> you had to have that trademark copyrighted licensed logo yep. thrown up there oh yeah at this point simpler and more generalized costumes like pirates and hobos and gypsies which are societal fringe groups also became popular oh like sexy pirates mm, sexy scurvy <laughs> Now, when I was a kid, there was a homemade clown costume that was a hand-me-down for a few members of my family. I dressed as that for several years in a row until I got too big for it. My sister and my brother had had it. My cousins, they also used it. So I was a clown for a few years in a row as a little kid. People of a certain vintage, again, may remember their parents doing this for them. And my mom would burn the end of a wine cork, and then when it cooled off, use the blackened end to draw a beard on my face to simulate stubble. Now as a grown-up, I'm just too lazy to shave every day, and I get the same dark stubble effect for free. Less wine. Less wine, less fire. Well, not the way I shave. <laughs> Halloween had changed again. Pushed to the background was the association with the end of harvest, the connection to the world of the dead and the dark season to come. People dressed in costumes to fool the spirits who might cause them grief or mischief, and ceremonies to try to predict the coming season were practiced. No more sacrifices to old gods and deities, and massive bonfires around town meant to symbolize the sun burning. When families would extinguish the fires in their hearths at home, 
and relight them from those same massive bonfires in an act of sympathetic magic. Now TV was telling kids to convince their parents to buy them the Superman costume or get that Popeye costume and a can of spinach. By the 1960s, the Ben Cooper Manufacturing Company owned 70 to 80% of the Halloween costume market. I can still to this day feel that wrath that could only be wrought by two cheap staples and a length of elastic band around the back of your head. And don't forget the poorly cut eye holes so the sharp plastic digs into the corners of your eyes. You can almost see Connell Cochran's point in Halloween 3. Happy, happy Halloween, 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 happy, happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. By that point, costumes and Halloween parties had started to catch on with adults again. As time went on and horror movies became huge in the 80s, a resurgence of scary themes started to make their way back into the costumes for kids and adults. I was a Frankenstein monster on more than one occasion, thanks to a rubber mask my older brother had, and I was a very poor version of Jason Voorhees, along with more than one kid at my grade school. I was never a Jason Voorhees, but I'd see the appeal in the sense that all you needed was a hockey mask. That was the whole point, and how you dressed the rest of it up didn't really matter, because you go to school in a hockey mask, and people immediately knew who you were. Yeah. You didn't even need to have Friday the 13th emblazoned across your torso. People just picked it up. Yep. Who could have guessed? And this was at a point where those old-style goalie masks were still available. Like, people knew exactly who you were. When you put on a goalie mask, you were Jason, baby. Yep. Even if you were wearing a flannel shirt with a handcuff hanging off of your wrist, even <laughs> though nobody at that point had ever put cuffs on Jason Voorhees. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> Getting a little worked up. <laughs> Back to our history. Gay communities at some point really latched onto the celebration according to the CNN article I quoted earlier. It states, These decades also saw gay communities across the states adopt the holiday as an occasion to wear outrageous outfits and hold parades, contributing to a boom in Halloween parties and the popularization of provocative costumes. Fashion historian and director of the New York University Costume Studies MA program, Nancy Deli, says in the article, in recent decades, costumes have oftentimes leaned toward the overtly sexy and campy. And saying that, the first image that popped into my head was Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Oh, Elvira. Great head of hair on that lady. Campy is supposed to be her whole thing, right? Kind yeah. of like that. It's like horror, but it's like silly horror. Yeah. Yeah. Anna Marie Almelia, a sociology research fellow at the London College of Fashion, says in a CNN article, Halloween costumes have gone from disguises to full-on exhibitionists. Today, it's one big capitalist celebration completely detached from any vestige of Christianity or paganism, and more centered around expressing people's fantasies, which also explains its success globally. And that's a great point. A Celtic pagan tradition evolves from one culture's religious practice, is co-opted by another, and eventually becomes a worldwide tradition spread across many different cultures with different roots and based off of the desire to dress up and party in an outrageous, fantastical-themed outfit. It's a great way to get out of your own skin and kind of free up your psyche by being somebody else or something else for a bit. Halloween costumes and decor are huge business. In 2020, it was estimated that $8 billion would be spent on Halloween in the U.S., and in 2022, it was predicted to be closer to $10 billion. Now, those numbers are likely skewed by the pandemic, but people were ready to party in 2022. 
For decades, Halloween had fallen out of favor in Great Britain, still celebrated to a degree in some areas, but what they lost, North America more than made up for, it seems. Not bad for a holiday that hasn't actually been recognized as a holiday for decades or even centuries. And I'd like to give a shout out and a thank you to the gay community for helping to keep those traditions alive, at least in some way. Now, candy and costumes are all good fun, but what about the trick in Trick or Treat, you might be thinking? Is that what you were thinking? It was what I was thinking, actually. Okay, it's good timing then, because you were thinking that, and I was just about to say something about it. Along with traditions like going from door to door, pranks also continued in North America. However, in some cases, the pranks led to vandalism and occasionally riots. It happened frequently enough that in the American press, they referred to it as the Halloween problem, and the anonymity of costumes was part of that problem. By the 18th and 19th century, Halloween had become entrenched in American society, but a few tricks here and there weren't really anything to worry about. Some farm animals set free was a nuisance, maybe some furniture from the porch on your farm was relocated, and maybe you found a jack-o'-lantern placed on your window looking inwards to give you a fright. Possibly burn your house down. Uh, it's always a possibility, but overall, pretty harmless, except for the burning part. And some might get a chuckle out of it. But little tricks also evolved into a much bigger problem. According to the Smithsonian Magazine website from October 27th, 2017, in an article titled, When Halloween Was All Tricks and No Treats, the harmless pranks gave way to more mean-spirited antics, which included property damage and assaults, people living in larger cities dealing with problems like poverty, unemployment, and crime began lashing out, and Halloween was seen as an easier time to get away with it, partly because of the anonymity of wearing a costume. Kids would beg for money or candy and threaten vandalism if they didn't get it. Give me your fucking money! Windows were soaked or smashed. From the article in the Smithsonian, kids strung ropes across sidewalks to trip people in the dark, tied the doorknobs of opposing apartments together so people couldn't get out, and pulled fire alarms. They also mowed down people's shrubbery. Oh no, don't mow down my shrubs. Okay. I think that's awesome because you know that there were at least a handful of cases where the person who owned the shrub was probably dreading looking out the window, seeing these things, thinking, oh, man, I got to I really got to deal with those someday. They're just such a pain to pull out of the ground. You know, they wake up November 1st. Oh, all the shrubs are gone. Like, that'd be great. Hey, thanks, pranksters. It's a Halloween miracle. <laughs> Kids also upset swill barrels. And once they filled the streets of Catalina Island with boats. Pranksters coated chapel seats with molasses in 1887, exploded pipe bombs in 1888, and smeared the walls of new houses with black paint in 1891. 200 boys in Washington, D.C. used bags of flour to attack well-dressed folks on streetcars in 1894. <laughs> I find it's kind of funny. The escalation of going from molasses on chapel seats to pipe bombs in, in the course of one year. Well, I mean, sometimes there's nowhere to go but up, baby. And then there was a nice three-year gap before the the houses getting painted. So I'm sure that the pipe, the pipe bomb experience of 88 probably left a few thinking, yeah, maybe we should rethink things before coming back with a much less severe activity you know three years later 
Yeah, there's probably some instances where kids from that year had to go out as Halloween the next year as crab people because they didn't have all their fingers. Oh, there. Yeah. And unlike crabs, they weren't just going to grow back. No. As a way to curtail this problem, local government officials in the U.S. began pushing Halloween as being geared more towards children. As you'll recall, I just mentioned that, you know, costumes based on popular culture at the time, Mickey Mouse and Popeye were coming into fashion. That's when they were pushing it more as a kid's thing and not an adult or teenager thing. So magazines, radio and TV began the push towards trick-or-treating and encouraging kids to politely ask for candy from neighbors and encouraged households to have candies on hand to give out. It took a while to catch on, but it did, and by the 50s, Halloween was more akin to what we mostly see now. Hey, capitalism wins again. Always does, man. And I'd like to add, too, that if I'm not mistaken, especially post-World War II, when all of the soldiers came home, I think that's when you really saw the idea of suburbs take hold mm. in the U.S. Neighborhoods suburbs so that times nicely with the push towards kids and trick-or-treating because you had sort of these self-contained blocks of residential homes that kids could just go door to door yeah. to door very yeah. easily in one night they weren't really having to go downtown they weren't having to go out into farm country it yeah. is everything was right there every house has to have candy Every kid has to have a costume, got one night, yep. you know. And then they could wander around their neighborhood. Yep. And there were so many people doing it, there wasn't really time for pranks yep. at that point. And then it would be a little easier to figure out who was in your neighborhood, what kids were what, yeah. right? I remember there weren't many houses with kids in my neighborhood. So I went trick-or-treating in my nan's neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I was really good friends with the kids that lived next door. I was there every weekend. My mom and I would go to my nan's and I'd hang out with these kids. So we would do Halloween there. There was a lot of families in that area. Mm-hmm. So one of my friends came up with the idea that he was going to have two Halloween costumes. We're going to go out. He's going to get candy, go home and change, and then go around again, get twice the candy. Brilliant. Except regardless of who you are, everybody in the neighborhood recognized him, said, ah, nice try. (laughs) So it turned out to be more of a trick on him than it was on them. Now, there's still pranks here and there today, but nothing like the stuff that went on in the late 1800s and early 1900s for the most part. But does that mean the mean-spirited pranks all just went away? Oh, no, no, no. They just got their own day for it or night for it. That brings us to what is known as Mischief Night. To others, it's Devil's Night, Prank Night, and, confusingly in some cases, as Cabbage Night. October 30th became a night that was all about pranks and mischief that Halloween had left behind. I'm just getting flashbacks of the crow now. (laughs) Who the fuck gets married on Halloween anyhow? (laughs) Nobody. So, Mischief Night actually started out in Britain as a different night altogether, according to Time magazine. A 2015 article called A Brief History of Mischief Night. According to the article, Mischief Night was a thing in 1790, but took place the night before May Day, which was May 1st, so I guess technically that would be April 30th. 
People could expect to be trapped in their houses, I'll get your damn kids for this. have a wash tub or two overturned in their yards, or have their shop signs switched out with somebody else's. Annoying, but hardly a reason to call out the local constable. I'm sorry, can we just expect to be trapped in their houses? Nothing serious. Just, you know, trapped in your own home. Yeah, there wasn't really any specific detail of what that meant. <laughs> I can only imagine people piled stuff in front of doors or, yeah, that you would know, make more sense. nailed the doors shut from the outside. So other mentions of Mischief Night also include Guy Fox Day, referring to the local use as removing gates from private residences. Now, a fence costs money. So if kids are going to steal your fence, now I'm saying call the cops. You know, hearing this, it does remind me of, and again, I don't know if this is just another one of those urban legends, because I don't know where I first heard it, but I'm fairly certain that I once heard a story about something like this, where in a small town, a group of boys decided to take the gate off of someone's fence who clearly was not having it. And in an attempt to scare the boys off, the homeowner runs out, unloads both barrels of a shotgun into the air, winds up clipping one of the kids and killing them, and all over a Mischief Night prank. Now, I know in the time since I've tried going online to look for references of this taking place, but of course you could imagine trying to Google pranksters shot by homeowner it just ends up making you sad yeah there's probably a lot of articles on that you don't want to get too deep into that nope freaking mischief night man now mischief night apparently began its association with halloween in the u.s in the 30s and 40s and wasn't just limited to october 30th but also included a day or two leading up to it as well so you're talking about a good solid three days or so of just nightly pranks leading up to Halloween. <laughs> As I'd mentioned above, petty vandalism was becoming an issue and efforts were made to separate the tricks from the treats and move more towards a kid-centric holiday. While Mischief Night was never really squashed, the vandalism was toned down due to neighborhood watches and increased police presences. Where I grew up, my parents always made sure that nothing was left on the porch that could be stolen, broken, or used to break a window on the night of October 30th. As far as mischief night pranks went, I never understood the whole toilet paper and the tree thing. I know it's popular in TV and movies, but I don't think I've ever seen it in real life. Yeah, me neither. But what I do remember is the next morning at school on the morning of October 31st, We'd almost always be treated to some smashed windows, a lot of graffiti stating that our school sucked, and the words pussy and fuck were very popular with whoever decided to spray paint the walls. And there was even a little vandalism done to the cemetery next door. And every year, the janitor would do his best to clean off the spray paint. However, that just meant that instead of reading the words pussy and fuck and spray paint, we'd read it in the extremely clean spots on the weather-beaten, dirty brick walls where he had applied the paint there. <laughs> I mean, I knew other kids who had stories of their windows being soaked over. Like you said, in TV and movies, 
where houses got egg, trees got toilet papered, and cars were decorated with shaving cream. I never actually saw any of that in my neighborhood. No, the shaving cream was something else. Again, I don't know if that was just a TV and movie thing, but I never saw that in real life either. I think maybe that's what it actually was. People knew about Mischief Night or Cabbage Night or Devil's Night, whatever you want to call it. And it was kind of a thing when Halloween was all about kids in the 80s and stuff like that. And every TV show had a Halloween episode. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they knew there was a night before there was vandalism or on Halloween night there was vandalism. But the TV shows that were family oriented didn't want to show real kind of vandalism. So I think they kind of made up the soaped over windows or at least the toilet paper in the trees. because. I mean, really, if you're going out of your way to vandalize somebody's yard, you probably want to do a little more than, you know, save them some money on toilet paper that week when they go grocery shop. <laughs> or clear their windows for them. Yeah, soaked over windows. Wouldn't that just mean you could easily spray it off and then your windows would be that much cleaner? Thanks, prank night. You get clean windows and a yard with all your shrubs removed. I mean, you wake up November 1st, you're feeling pretty good. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, okay, maybe not great, but certainly wouldn't be too bad. This was all relatively small town stuff that we're talking about here. Mischief Night really got its own spotlight in the 70s in Detroit, Michigan. And it got its own name. That's where the name Devil's Night came from. Everybody throw up the devil horns, baby! Woo! Devil's fucking night. What's the count of the fire so far? <laughs> throw another, another crow reference in there, because that whole movie takes place in Detroit. See, Devil's Night in Michigan really took on a whole new level of mischief in the form of not just vandalism, but as you mentioned, arson. Hundreds of acts of vandalism and arson occurred every year in Detroit during the 70s and 80s, but it really peaked in 84 when the days leading up to and including October 30th saw 800 arsons in the city and the surrounding areas, and that kept going every year all the way up to 2011. Every year in the days leading up to Devil's Night, there were well over a hundred arsons recorded, man. You know what's funny about that? Hearing you mention the number of fires that were started in the city those years, in those decades, the first thing I thought of, if we take it all the way back to the very early origins of Samhain, what did people do? They lit big bonfires. bonfires. Yep. Yep. But, I mean, that was to, you know, symbolize the, the sun burning in the sky or the sun setting for the year, right? Mm -hmm. This, maybe there were a lot of pagans in Detroit. <laughs> I don't know. But they definitely latched onto it, that whole bonfire. I am appreciating the unintentional sort of historic callback. Uh, Even if the motivations were nowhere near the same, you have people who are doing this with the express purpose of causing damage and are completely oblivious the entire time that in a it's, sense they're just doing what people have always done it's mirroring something from the past that yep. they don't realize they're mirroring they finally got a handle on it in 1995 when officials organized angels night which saw 50,000 volunteers sign up to patrol the city and report suspicious activities the number of arsons gradually declined through the 90s and the 2000s until the annual Angels Night event was formally ended in 2018. And like you mentioned, The Crow, I thought all that stuff was just made up for The Crow. I didn't realize that there was an actual historic basis for that little part of the movie. That's crazy. 
But what about Cabbage Night? I hear nobody asking. <laughs> Don't worry, I've also got some information on that too. According to Wikipedia, Cabbage Night is basically Mischief Night with the usual pranks and soaping windows, egging houses, light vandalism, etc. But with the added fun of the custom of raiding local gardens for leftover rotting cabbages and hurling them about to cause mischief in the neighborhood. Today, the night is still celebrated in rural Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada, apparently, but is also commonly known as Cabbage Night in parts of the U.S. areas of Vermont, Connecticut, Bergen County, New Jersey, upstate New York, northern Kentucky, Newport, Rhode Island, and western Massachusetts. Another completely unrelated nugget of wisdom. Camp Crystal Lake in the Friday the 13th movies was filmed at an existing real-life camp called Camp Nobi Bosco. Yes, which stands New for Jersey. The, which stands for the North Bergen Boy Scouts. Really? Yep. Oh. So when I saw Bergen County there, I thought, I don't know if that's the one that's near that, but mentioning Bergen, that's kind of that's made, made cool. me think of that. Okay. I'm a huge fan of the Friday the 13th series, the good ones and the bad ones. And there's a lot of bad ones. <laughs> I knew it was Camp Nobi Bosco. I knew it was in New Jersey. I did not know that that is what the name stood for. Yeah, I think with most summer camps, they all have either Native American names or Native American sounding names okay. to them but yeah in this, in this case nobi bosco was actually an acronym oh that's cool i do know that occasionally camp nobi bosco will do tours mm -hmm. for people who are big fans of friday the 13th and on certain days probably friday the 13th you could actually buy tickets to go and they'll show the movie on a big oh, screen outside nice that's pretty sweet because yeah. for years they didn't want any association with it yeah it was still an active scout camp and you can understand why they didn't necessarily want the association with it. But it's kind of cool that they've embraced it. And yep. that's something that they do now. That's awesome. I love that. We've been talking for an hour and more here. And I've been rambling a lot. But I want to finish off this Halloween history thing with a few urban legends. Now, this is by no means a comprehensive list. But some of the more popular Halloween-centric ones are included here. What we just talked about earlier. Halloween being associated with devil worship. So dumb. We just spent a whole episode on Halloween and it's not devil worship. But here it is again. Many people believe that Halloween was a day to celebrate the devil and evil. Of course, that's not true. Nowadays, most people have a better understanding that Halloween is the remnants of a pre-Christian celebration that symbolized the end of the year, and rites were practiced to prepare for the coming winter and hope for a good spring. But far too many people for far too long had no idea about this, and because of the evolution of costumes and imagery associated with Halloween, believed that it was all about celebrating evil and the forces of darkness. Whoa! Couple that with the idea that some fundamentalists believe that anything that isn't Jesus is just the devil in disguise, and you have a big old mix of misinformation and assumption forming people's opinions. There is also the urban legend of the Idaho Halloween Massacre. This urban legend centers on an old photo of a group of people at a Halloween costume party, supposedly in 1962. According to the story, the person in the center of the photo is wearing a black hood and he locked all of the doors from the outside, then set about intending to murder everybody at the party. 
He killed seven people in what I assume was extremely gory and creative ways, depending on who was telling the story, before escaping into the night and was never caught. However, the mask was discovered in 1969, and the FBI have it, quote-unquote, in custody. <laughs> Not the person in custody, but the mask. The mask. Yeah. After seven years. Now, this one appears to have been debunked on, what's that website, Snoops or Snopes.com? Oh, yeah. I haven't been there in a while. The place is great. Yeah. And it points out the logical error of being able to lock the doors from the outside while still being inside and killing people, and then also escaping from the building that was locked from the outside into the night. Also, how would the FBI know that this was the mask that was used in the murders? And why did the killer stop at only seven? I guess the urban legend doesn't really specify whether or not the person doing the killing was a guest or the owner of the house. Whether or not he took off his costume at some point, simple process of elimination amongst the survivors would pretty easily narrow down you know, who wasn't accounted for when it was all said and done. Next urban legend. Satanists sacrificing black cats. Everybody knows that pet shelters will not let you adopt a black cat near Halloween because of the fear that they're going to be used in satanic rituals and be sacrificed to Satan. Again, there's that connection between Satan and Halloween. Animal shelters across North America just won't let you adopt black cats. And there's police reports to show that more black cats are found dead during that time of year, the result of abuse and practicing black magic. But it's not actually true. There's no studies or reports that show or prove that these things are happening, just like there's no actual studies that show that during the full moon, there's more crazy people and crazy activities. It's all urban legend. Now, whether some shelters actually buy into the urban legend is another matter. And while some shelters used to actually ban black cat adoption during Halloween in the past, the vast majority of shelters now realize it's all just stories and some places actually double down on getting black cats adopted because in general, it's harder to get them adopted all year long. Yeah, I, I don't know whether this is related or not, but I'm positive that I've heard it said in multiple places that black cats have a harder time being adopted in general due to that same unfounded belief that bringing them into your home uh, represents bad luck. You know, yeah, the same the way black cat crossing yeah. your path or they're evil or, or they're, you know, witches familiars are always depicted yeah. as black cats. But I have heard it said that people, when they go to adopt a cat, black cats usually uh, have the lowest odds. Yeah. I've also read something recently that black cats now get adopted less frequently because they aren't as photogenic and people who want to take pictures of their cats and put them on Instagram and social media, black cats blend into themselves too much to make a really great photo. So they tend not to get black cats. Sadly, there are usually more black cats in shelters than any other animals, and it can be especially hard to get them adopted at any time of year. And here's the big one, folks. This is the one that everybody knows. Poisoned Halloween candy. Whether you've ever heard of the 1962 Halloween massacre, whether you believe in the devil or think that black cats have it rougher around Halloween than any other time of year, you must know this one. If you have ever trick-or-treated, your parents probably passed this one along to you themselves with the best of intentions. Your grandparents probably checked your parents' candy. Exactly. Best of intentions, they want everybody to be safe. So they told you this because they learned it from somewhere else. For decades, parents were warned by TV and news and the police to check their kids' Halloween candy for tampering. This is breaking news. 
The big fear for decades was that one of your crazy neighbors would slip in some rat poison and make your kids sick or even kill them. But it was just not true. Everybody knew it was a real thing that could happen, and best to err on the side of caution and maybe an opportunity for parents to justify keeping a couple of those delicious, savory, serving-sized peanut butter cups for themselves. Oh. that was the single greatest noise that anyone's ever made on this podcast. But poisoned Halloween candy just wasn't a real thing that happened. Until it was. In 1974, a terrible human being named Ronald Clark O'Brien used the urban legend as a cover to murder his eight-year-old son with cyanide-laced pixie sticks. It was done in an effort to collect insurance money. The police investigation led to his arrest and his imprisonment, and remains, as far as I could find, the only actual case of Halloween candy-related poisoning that's actually happened. Now, of course, that did nothing to dissuade the notion. It just made people double down on the idea that it happens all the time. It doesn't. That instance of somebody using the legend after the fact caused a huge panic and reinforced the belief And from that, the idea evolved into needles being stuck at chocolate bars, razor blades and apples. Halloween 2, released in 1981, even had a scene where a kid is being brought into the emergency room by his mom with a bloody mouth. Now, for years, I thought it was an ice cube in his mouth to stop the bleeding, but with high-quality streaming and special edition DVDs and much bigger TVs, it's plain to see now that it's a razor blade stuck in the kid's mouth. This also led communities to offer to x-ray candy. And as time went on, this evolved again to candy being dosed with LSD. And in the last couple of years, with the decriminalization and legalization of marijuana in some places, the idea that stoners are slipping your kids THC-laced candy or THC gummies. I fail to see the threat in THC-laced gummies to your kids as being on the same level as razor blades or needles or broken glass. So that is what I have on the history of Halloween. And the beautiful thing about Halloween and its history is that unlike our usual chats like this, there's no point discussing whether or not the lore wins. There's nothing to discuss. It happens right. every year. It's celebrated around the world. Everybody loves it. There's no mystery there. There's yeah, no debate. Exactly. So that being said, Halloween is great. Halloween is great. Halloween is the best time of year. I mean, I don't need an excuse to watch horror movies. It's a little more fun around Halloween. Mm-hmm. The time of year feel a little more special, kind of like people watching Christmas movies during Christmas. You got some great Halloween movies out there. My personal favorite ones to watch on Halloween are, of course, John Carpenter's classic 1978 Halloween Trick or Treat that I had mentioned earlier in the discussion here. A relatively recent one. Yeah, I think that was from 2007, and that's a great little anthology movie that has a wraparound story, so it brings everything together. I do love a good wraparound. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. A lot of people didn't like this movie because it doesn't contain Michael Myers in it, doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movies, but 
on its own, completely separate from the Halloween franchise. I think this movie's a great little movie. And doesn't it have the guy from Night of the Creeps in it? It does. Tom Atkins. That man can play anything. Usually a middle-aged, horny dude with a mustache. Which, speaking of Tom Atkins, like you had mentioned, Night of the Creeps. Great 80s comedy horror movie about alien space slugs specifically that get in your brain and turn everybody into zombies. Detective, thrill me. Love that movie. <laughs> that, as we've mentioned in the past with Urban Legends about Lover's Lane, that movie actually starts out with a scene on Lover's Lane. I think we talked about it in a previous episode. Love that movie. The Fog by John Carpenter is great. I really enjoy watching the Disney animated Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Disney version is great. Yeah, I remember that from when I was a kid. It had a old Ichabod Crane. Yep. Interesting thing about that, everybody associates it with Halloween. It's not a story about Halloween. Halloween is never mentioned. It takes place in the autumn. It talks about a harvest festival. But Halloween, jack-o'-lanterns are not actually mentioned. That's another great one to watch. There's just a sense of fun. So, have a happy and spooky Halloween, listeners. Maybe you commune with an elder god or two, Cthulhu Photogen, for those of you who know. Go ahead and eat most of that candy you bought to hand out to your trick-or-treaters. Have a couple of pumpkin beers, if that's your thing. And you know, I've heard they're putting razor blades in the IPAs, so best stay away from those. I was planning to sit on a lawn chair outside the Winnebago. <clears throat> Mobile Command Center. Oh, whatever. I was planning to sit on a lawn chair outside the mobile command center with a couple of pumpkin ales, watch some movies, and eat a large pizza while handing out candy. Wait, wait. Was your plan? What is your plan now? Yeah, my plans have changed. I got a date later that night. She said she wanted to meet in a cemetery at midnight. I'm cool, though. A little roleplay with a hot goth chick? That could be fun. Oh, dude, what? That's weird. Are you sure about this? Yeah, why? What could go wrong? Well, let's look at your recent track record. Shouldn't you be asking what could go more wrong than usual? What's that supposed to mean? Dude, you've been going on blind dates that end up getting us killed by whatever gobble you decide to swipe on on any given week. Okay, that's a little harsh. They're not all goblins. Dude, one of your dates was covered in hair, had fangs, and three-inch claws. We had to call in a priest to bless our first mobile command center, because I'm pretty sure your decision to use a Ouija board to find a date invited a poltergeist into our living space. Okay, Sheila was a nice girl, she was going through some things, we tried a long-distance relationship, and it didn't work. Yeah, dating a dead woman from the Victorian era was pretty long-distance, and you couldn't even break it off. You tried to ghost her, but she was a ghost already. Did you not realize she would see right through that? And then, and then, she possessed all of our equipment. Oh, yeah. I wonder what happened to the ghost hunting group I sold all that stuff to. And then, our last mobile command center was ripped apart by a friggin' chupacabra you decided to stand up. Tasha. It was not Natasha. Listen, she said her name was Natasha. She looked like the thing from Species. I assumed it was Natasha Henstrich using a picture from her movie. We discussed all of this already. I said I was sorry. Anyway, I got a good feeling about this one. A good feeling? About a date who wants to meet at midnight in a cemetery on Halloween? Where is the cemetery anyway? Pack up your stuff, baby. We're going back to Kansas. I gotta find a place called Stull Cemetery. Oh, damn it.